Today we have the privilege of hosting Josh Hammer. Josh is opinion editor of Newsweek, a frequent commentator on political, legal, and cultural issues. He's a constitutional attorney by training. Josh hosts the Josh Hammer Show, a Newsweek podcast, and co-hosts the Edmund Burke Foundation's NatCon Squad podcast. An outspoken conservative, Josh lectures on conservative intellectual trends, current domestic and foreign policy debates, constitutional and legal issues. He has been published by many leading outlets, including Fox Business, The Jerusalem Post, The Daily Mail, The New York Post, and The Daily Wire. Josh has been an outspoken voice in support of the judicial reform being pushed by the Netanyahu government, which has been subject to criticism by many. I invited him to learn why he believes the reform will strengthen Israel's democracy. I want the audience to, to get to know you a little bit better. And, you know, uh, what's your story? Yeah, happy to be here. So like you, I am a South Florida resident. I moved here in the middle of COVID like so many others did in August 2021. I love it. I never want to leave. I've bounced around a bunch of different states, but definitely hope to be a Floridian for the long term. So I have worked in a lot of places. I'm only 34, but I feel like I've held a lot of different careers at this point. So I'm a lawyer by background, went to law school, worked at a law firm for a little bit, clerked for a federal judge based out of Texas on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, but have worked in media now for the past four, four and a half, five years or so, something along those lines. And currently I run the op-ed section at Newsweek, the publication that is in print and online. That's also where I host my own podcast, The Josh Hammer Show, a Newsweek podcast. I also am a research fellow at the Emin Burke Foundation, which is uh, which is a think tank dedicated to national conservatism. And I am one of the four co-hosts on their own weekly podcast called NatCon Squad. I write a weekly syndicated column that gets blasted out to Newsweek and any number of other publications that run that column typically just do a lot of campus speaking through various organizations and kind of just have a lot of hands out there, largely in the conservative political world. I think the audience is especially interested in, in getting to know what's going on in Israel. I know that you're a very, you know, very in favor of the reform that the Netanyahu gov government is pushing right now. And, you know, we hear in the media how, you know, this is going to be the end of democracy and the destruction of the state of Israel, the end as, as we know, uh, the end of the state of Israel as we know it. So, you know, I was, I was wondering if you can give, you know, the audience um, an understanding of what the reform is all about and why you're in favor of this reform and why, you know, you believe it, it, it will strengthen the country and not, uh, you know, and definitely not destroy it, to the, quite the contrary. So, sure. So uh, I... I'm a generalist as far as the topics that and issues that I cover, but definitely one of the topics that I am passionate about is Israel and the U.S.-Israel relationship, and uh, uh, you know foreign policy issues in general. But I really, I really cover the entire political spectrum. But I, I've definitely been interested in Israeli politics and what's going on over there for a very long time now. So I have taken it upon myself to be kind of a vocal advocate for the current judicial reform that the Netanyahu government is pushing. Part of that is due to my kind of well grounding in Israel issues and also kind of my training as a constitutional attorney. So I can look at it also not just from an Israeli perspective, but kind of a comparative constitutional perspective, look at comparisons to the United States and, and things like that. So the thing that I think a lot of Americans who are typically ill-served by the mainstream media, they largely do not get the full um, breadth and depth of information that would be relevant. So I think that would be an understatement. Uh, they're getting an extremely skewed and biased perspective. 
What most don't appreciate is how utterly bonkers and out of whack Israel's current legal constitutional structure or lack thereof is. It is totally, totally, totally nuts what's happening over there as far as kind of the basic way that the government operates. And what I mean by that is that Israel does not have a written constitution. So in the United States, we obviously have a written constitution. It is seven articles, 27 amendments. Uh, outlining a very specific structure of government where there is a tripartite separation of powers. The Federalist Papers are famously devoted to kind of, uh, you know, talking about kind of the wonderful nature. Madison says in Federalist 51, if men were angels, none of this would be necessary. It's very eloquent stuff. Israel really has none of that. Uh, when the state was founded in May of 1948 by Ben-Gurion and, and, and the rest of the bunch, there was not a written constitution at that time. Rather, um, sovereignty was vested, as is customary in a parliamentary system, in the parliament. So much like how in the UK, the parliament ultimately has the sovereignty, or in Canada, the Canadian parliament has sovereignty there. In Israel, the way that it initially worked for at least the first four and a half decades after the establishment of the state in 1948 is that their parliament, the Knesset, was able to retain sovereignty over decisions pertaining to foreign policy, national security, economic policy, really any and all of the above. This starts to go off the rails quite a bit in the 1990s when the very left-wing former chief justice of the Israeli Supreme Court by the name of Aaron Barak uh, self-pronounced a judicial revolution, a constitutional revolution, and he arrogated unto himself and arrogated unto the Israeli Supreme Court powers that were you know, hitherto prior to that completely unthinkable and to this day are unmatched by any other judiciary really across the entire world. Um, the powers that subsequently came, became enacted into the Israeli Supreme Court's day-to-day -day operations are so extreme that the former U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit Judge Richard Posner, who was not shy himself from judicial activism, he himself felt compelled to say that Chief Justice Aaron Barak was a, quote, enlightened despot, which I think would be a polite way of saying it. So what this means in practice is that the Israeli Supreme Court has um, it, it basically has decided the ability to decide any policy or any legal issue at any time for any reason whatsoever. There is no need to point to a specific constitutional provision to nullify or strike down or enjoin the enforcement of a statute because, of course, there actually is no written constitution. What Israel does have is a series of basic laws, roughly 13, if I'm not mistaken about the exact number. These basic laws attain what most legal commentators say have quasi-constitutional status, which in theory would be a sufficient grounding for judicial review if they were to actually codify it as a constitution. They could try to enjoin statutes if they infringe upon the basic laws. The problem is multifold. One is that the Supreme Court has itself decided that it can actually annul the basic laws, which in the U.S. would be the equivalent of the U.S. Supreme Court striking down the First Amendment or the Second Amendment if it didn't want so. And furthermore, over there, judicial review expands way beyond the basic laws. They can actually strike down a law simply because it is, quote unquote, unreasonable. And it's actually even worse than that. They can not merely strike down laws because they are, quote unquote, unreasonable. They can actually prevent the government from appointing certain ministerial cabinet appointment positions, as just happened over there recently when the Supreme Court enjoined the Netanyahu government's um, 
uh, proposal, I guess you would say, to have Aryeh Derry, who is the head of the uh, Sephardic Orthodox Party, the Shas Party, the Supreme Court enjoined that because they said it would be unreasonable for the Netanyahu government to have serving in the ministry someone who was previously convicted of uh, of a tax uh, violation, which he paid the, the penalty for many years ago, like literally 20 years ago or something like that. So the Supreme Court is totally, totally lawless, I would say. Um, another thing that stands out from my perspective is that in Israel, um, you know, in the U.S., the way it works is you need what lawyers call standing in order to bring a lawsuit. What that means is you need to have an injury. You need to be able to show that your injury directly and concretely relates to a remedy that the court can actually give you. Otherwise, what the hell are you doing in a court of law? Over there, you don't even need standing. So any citizen can bring any suit to enjoin any policy at any time for any reason. And oh, by the way, also, if that was not bad enough, their attorney general, which is a real bastardization of the term attorney general because it bears little to no resemblance to the U.S. functional equivalent of the U.S. attorney general, the Israeli attorney general basically is a one-person roving commission that can decide whether a law that the Knesset, the parliament passes is constitutional or not, and then can say, oh, you can't enforce that, just one person. So the, the whole thing is just totally nuts. And we haven't even gone into how the Supreme Court selects its own predecessors because they because they literally retain kind of a, a commanding plurality on the Judicial Selection Committee and have an effective veto over their own successors that they don't like, which means that they get to choose the people who replace them. It's just nuts, and it, it amounts to juristocracy, judicial oligarchy, whatever you want to call it. It is a rule of cloistered elites, uh, elites who typically fit a very narrow and niche demographic slice of the Israeli electorate. It's really kind of the last-ditch effort of the of Israel's founding, which is predominantly politically left of center, secular, socialist, Ashkenazi, Tel Aviv elite. It's really kind of the last grasp of these old-school Ashkenazi leftist socialists trying to wield power over an Israel that has become much more diverse since then. It, it has become more Mizrahi, more Sephardi, more, and most important, more religious, more traditionalist, more nationalist. So – that is the clash. It's quite a clash. And obviously, we've seen the protests in the streets. But um, I do feel very strongly that the reforms are just and that they should proceed. Awesome. And and what are exactly are the reforms? I, I under, it's my understanding. I'm no expert in the topic. But, you know, it's my understanding that there are two main, you know, the most important uh, tenets of the reform, which are how the justices are appointed. And the second one is the overhaul clause. Um, so I'm wondering if you can you know, explain to me a little bit about it. Uh, what are those two attempts, and if there are any other you know um, you know material changes that that you know the Netanyahu government are, is pushing in this reform? Yeah, so there's a sweeping array of changes here. Uh, you highlighted two of the more controversial ones. Some of the less controversial ones would be to limit the power of the so-called attorney general, who once again is this one-person roving commission who bears little to no resemblance to the U.S equivalent that we call our attorney general. Another policy that the uh, reforms would implement would be to kind of strip the ability of the Supreme Court to nullify or enjoin enforcement of a statute solely on grounds that it is unreasonable. It would require them to point to something more than that, which is just pure logical common sense, frankly. But the two provisions that are purportedly more controversial are the two that you have referred uh, to as the 
Judicial Selection Committee's uh, method for selecting its successors, and then also the override clause. So the Judicial Selection Committee uh, currently, I, I, I believe it is, the way it's comprised is there are nine people on the Judicial Selection Committee. I, I My numbers might be slightly off here, but if I'm correct, I think it's nine people, three of whom are sitting as really Supreme Court justices, but you need seven of the nine to agree on who to choose as the next Supreme Court justice. So what that means in practice is that if the three sitting Supreme Court justices gang up, they can get that nine number down to six, thus prevent a quorum, and they have veto power basically over who their own successors are. And by the way, you know, among the other members of that nine-person committee are representatives from the Israeli Bar Association, which is, you know, as most professional bar associations are, is disproportionately left-wing, deeply hostile to kind of nationalist and and and, and religious values and, and things like that. Um, the the proposal would expand that number from nine to eleven and would effectively dilute the power of the justice to choose their own successors. It would politicize the process more. It would democratize the process more. This is, of course, the greatest irony of the so-called anti-democracy protesters who think that these reforms would somehow kind of throw away democracy. It is literally the exact opposite of that. Um, these reforms would, would democratize Israel. They would literally make the process more democratic. They would get more Knesset members, more members of the democratically elected government on their on the Judicial Selection Committee. Um, so that's the alleged controversy, which I think is totally uncontroversial. In my opinion, actually, the current judicial reforms when it comes to the Judicial Selection Committee don't even go far enough. What I would prefer to see is that it be purely politically accountable, purely democratically accountable, much like we have here in the United States. So the way it works in the United States is that when you have a vacancy on the U.S. Supreme Court or any of the federal courts of appeals or federal district courts. The Constitution prescribes a specific method uh, known as advice and consent, whereby the president nominates and the U.S. Senate confirms a judicial nomination. I would prefer to see a similar process um, if I were advising Israel to write a constitution. I would prefer it to be purely democratically accountable. So I don't even think these reforms go far enough in, in from that perspective, but it's, a, it's at least a step in the right direction. The override clause, which has been to this day probably the, the most controversial, the judicial reform um, packages uh, components, what the override clause would do is it would allow 61 members, so that's a majority of the Knesset, which is 120 members, it would permit 61 members to override a decision of the Israeli Supreme Court. Now, the... The bill is or the reforms are smart enough to build in a lot of checks on that power. So um, if 15 justices of, of the court, um, because uh, th 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 these packages would expand the number of justices, if I recall, to 15, if I think the threshold is if 12 of the 15 um, vote to strike down a law, then the Knesset cannot override it. So that's one possible check that's already built in. If a high enough percentage vote to strike down the law, then it cannot be overridden. Another thing is that the if the Knesset overrides the, the Supreme Court striking down of a law, um, the, there's a built-in sunset provision. The, the override would automatically expire in, I believe, four years' time. By the way, this is nearly identical to a similar provision that exists in the Canadian Constitution. So Canada, which is also a parliamentary system, also has a system of parliamentary supremacy. Their constitution also has a, an override clause whereby the Canadian Parliament can override the Canadian Supreme Court. 
Their sunset clause is five years, so Israel's is actually slightly smaller than that. And of course, another thing to bear in mind here is that the Supreme Court decides hundreds, likely thousands, maybe even tens of thousands. They decide a lot of petitions in a given year, many, many, far, far, far too many than the Knesset could possibly override. So uh, the Supreme Court could still, even under this system, override the Knesset if it wanted to. And the final thing to bear in mind here, because this is where people typically kind of trot out the parade of horribles. They say, oh, what if Israel does this? What if they do that? The other thing to bear in mind here is that Israel is always under a constant microscope from the global elites, from the United Nations, from various forces out in the world who are frankly usually often anti-Semitic and just hate Israel. So Israel is cognizant of that fact. And the Knesset, for those obvious reasons as well, you know, would not necessarily be quick to override the Supreme Court in a way that would grossly, grossly offend the very delicate sensibilities of the leftist elites in the United Nations or in Brussels or things like that. Awesome. So a, a lot to unpack there. But, you know, let's let's talk about let's go back to the justices, because I I'm wondering the U.S. So the president appoints a, you know, a justice and then the Senate has to confirm it. That's it's my understanding that that's that's the process. So. But, you know, the framers, the founders of the U.S., they, they created this system of checks and balances where you have the executive branch and a bicameral system where you have the Senate and the House of Representatives. In Israel, since it's a parliamentary system, you only have, you know, the executive and the and the legislature is essentially one in the same. Um, so I'm wondering, isn't it a lot of power to, you know, provide the executive? There's, there's no, you know, checks and balances in, in the sense that there's no... Prime Minister doesn't, you know, nominate somebody, uh, uh, yeah, a candidate, a justice, and then some o other body, you know, votes on it or, or argues, argues, you know, to see if this is the appropriate candidate. So I'm wondering what your thoughts on that is. And, um, and yeah, because there, there, there are no checks and balances there. So, but, but again, since there is no constitution, um, I'm wondering, you know, in which, in which way can this be done in a way that it doesn't infringe upon, you know, minority rights, for example. Because, you know, going back to the topic of, of, of you know, it's funny because people say that this is, this, this, and this reform is going to end democracy. But my, what, what I see is that this is going to make the, the country more democratic. And that's something, you know, I'm also, I consider myself to be a conservative. That's something that worries me because, you know, you can end up with the tyranny of the majority. You know, the U.S. is not a democracy. It's a constitutional republic because, you know, the the majority cannot vote to infringe upon on, on the rights of the minority. So does, doesn't this, don't you think this reform is too democratic? Well, if I were advising Israel, if I were there in, in Tel Aviv with Ben-Gurion and Menachem Begin and everyone else in 1948, I would have advised that they write a constitution. And personally, I think the U.S. constitution is a pretty good place to start. I, I you might even call me a U.S. Constitution supremacist. I think the U.S. Constitution is actually very good. Um, so, uh, yes, my, my normative bias is for a constitutional structure that looks a lot like the U.S. I like our fairly clean separation of powers, our fairly clean federalism between powers of the national government and the states. I, I like it quite a bit. The point is that Israel does not have that. So when you do not have a constitution – 
And the U.S. Constitution is the document that establishes all three branches. The Constitution is the document that establishes the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch. The Constitution also, by the way, vests sovereignty in the people. But where does sovereignty reside in a country that does not have a constitution? Well, again, the norm that the founders of Israel were basing their country off of to the extent they had a norm was the was the British model. Of course, Israel had a, had most recently emerged from the British mandate for Palestine, which was a result of the Sykes-Picot Agreement that carved up the Middle East um, around 1918 to 1920 or so, the San Remo Conference in 1920 kind of being kind of the final confirmation of that. So it had emerged from kind of British-style colonial rule. And sure enough, at the time that Israel was founded, they actually inherited large swaths of the English common law when it comes to kind of uh, property, torts, contracts, some of your traditional common law subjects. So the point is, they were modeling themselves to the extent they were modeling themselves off anything of the British model. And the British model has unambiguous parliamentary supremacy. The parliament is supreme. So again, I would recommend that they write a constitution. If they want to add more checks and balances to the judiciary, if they want to create a, if they want to totally ditch part of a parliamentary system and establish something closer to the president and the Congress, like we have here in the U S that's up to them. Um, but if they want to kind of enshrine a constitution that clarifies what the scope of judicial review of the constitution is, again, that's fine, but they did not do that. And again, it's important to bear in mind here, the U.S. Supreme Court, when the U.S. Supreme Court is checking tyranny of the majority, which is a very real fear, to be clear, um, that was Abraham Lincoln's entire point against Stephen Douglas in his 1858 debate. So tyranny of the majority is actually a very real fear. I cannot agree with you more on that. The point is that when the U.S. Supreme Court is checking, um, you know, a congressional or executive branch overreach or excesses on those grounds, they are doing so pursuant to their express authority directly rooted in the Constitution. Well, where is the Kness? Sorry, excuse me. Where is the Israeli Supreme Court's authority vested? It's not vested in the Constitution. It's vested in a statute which was passed by the Knesset. Put another way, the Israeli Supreme Court is itself a direct creature of the Knesset. It was created by the Knesset for ostensible purposes of serving the Knesset. So it's it's very difficult to compare the two from this perspective. And again, like if I were advising them to write a constitution, how it would, how it would look, um, I think would be qu a, quite a bit different. But the Israeli Supreme Court, as it currently stands, again, has unfathomable power. It, what, what currently exists there is wildly, wildly untenable. If they want to constitutionally enshrine a Bill of Rights and say that, you know, uh, you know, you have these 10 to 15 guaranteed rights that, that are secure no matter what the majority says and you are hereby bound uh, you as really Supreme Court are hereby bound to secure these rights, even against the Knesset if need be. That's fine. That's a, that's an that would be a legitimate basis for judicial review to secure X Y Z rights. But there's nothing like that. There is literally the, ba the basic laws aren't that exactly. I mean, I've, I've they, it's funny they, that they, people they, say they, that they're quasi constitutional, but the Knesset with a simple majority they can change them. Is that correct? I mean, they can amend the constitution with a simple Knesset majority, which itself should indicate that they're not. The constitution because any constitution yeah. worth its salt would not be able to simply be tweaked or added or amended based on a majority vote that defeats the entire purpose of a constitution a constitution by its very nature is not supposed to be kind of a momentary kind of 
um, eruption of majoritarian will, but rather kind of an enduring contract that sustains a nation state. So it, it self-evidently is not a constitution. That's why they call it quasi-constitutional. And again, the, the Supreme Court has even said that it's that it has the power to override those those basic laws. So the Supreme Court itself doesn't even seem to view those basic laws as constitutional. So if the Supreme Court itself doesn't view those laws as constitutional, then I'm not sure why I and other proponents of the reform measures are supposed to kind of play along with this elaborate legal fiction that the so-called quasi-constitutional basic laws are themselves constitutional, again, if even the Israeli Supreme Court is not going to indulge that fiction. Don't you believe that, like, for example, another body, like, you know, the, given the, I understand in the U.S. it wouldn't make sense because you have checks and balances, you have the Senate, you know, the president appointing, but given the fact that in Israel you don't have any other body, it's just the Knesset, don't you think it makes sense to have, like, representatives of the bar or representatives of, a, you know, or current justices, not the way that it is right now, but, you know, having the 15 uh, members, all of them part of the Knesset, um, I mean, I'm I'm thinking if, if it's a good idea to I'm wondering your thoughts on it. And uh, and what about the argument that the legislator doesn't know what makes a good judge or a good justice? So so you ha you should have the input of the bar. What do you think about that? So this is the hubris of the idea that elites know better than the people in virtually every area of life for the past 20, 30, 40 years. This has been belied by reality as events have unfolded literally everywhere. You know, in the United States, so-called elites thought it would be good policy for China to ascend to the World Trade Organization and to kind of outsource the entire kind of Rust Belt manufacturing industry to China. That suffice to say that has not worked out well. Out well. You know, back in the early 2000s, bipartisan elites in the foreign policy establishment in Washington, D.C., thought it would be a good idea to march into Iraq to topple Saddam Hussein and get his nefarious weapons mass destruction. Has not ended well. 2011, Samantha Power and Hillary Clinton did the same thing in Libya to topple Gaddafi. Here we are 12 years later. Libya is still in the midst of a jihadist civil war. I could go on and on. But no matter where you look, it is this idea that elites somehow know better than the will of the people. That has been proven wrong time and time again. What's more, there is a dictum known as O'Sullivan's Law. It is named after named excuse me named after my my friend John O'Sullivan, the former uh, speechwriter for uh, Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in the UK and a longtime National Review editor. Uh, so O'Sullivan's Law stipulates, and this, in my personal experience, is an emphatically accurate sentiment. That any institution that is not explicitly oriented towards the right will inherently drift leftwards over time. Again, that has happened to every bar association that I am aware of over the world. The um, the ABA, the American Bar Association, which at this point has lost any morsel of credibility, in my opinion, that it once had, literally lists on its website. The ABA lists on its website its express positions uh, on issues such as gun control, abortion, various other kind of morally and politically charged issues. The Israeli Bar Association, while I don't claim to be as familiar with it as I am the American Bar Association, is no doubt also dominated by monolithic left-leaning elites who, oh, by the way, probably have an additional incentive to act uh, you know, in a nepotistic way 
and to reward their friends as well. So the whole thing um, is backwards. I really see nothing wrong whatsoever with direct political management. Now, in the United States Constitution, our, our, justice, our justices and judges serve uh, life tenure. I'm not necessarily saying I would recommend that over there. I mean, they could be directly politically accountable and then, um, you know, maybe they could be up for, re for uh, uh, you know, some states here in the U.S. have what are known as retention elections. So the justices are not chosen by the people, although some states have that too. Uh, Texas, where I used to live, is is, fa is famous for having direct uh, Texas Supreme Court judicial elections. But some states that even have their state Supreme Courts not necessarily directly elected, but kind of through a similar kind of advice and consent process, they still have retention elections, whereby once every X years, call it 10 years or whatever, the people go to the ballot to vote whether or not they want to retain, to keep a certain justice sitting on the Supreme Court. So that, that's another possible model that Israel could adopt there. So again, there are various checks that you could easily put into place that would kind of subdue the risk of this kind of tyranny of the majority sentiment. So just to clarify, you say that the so-called elites, let's say, have been you know not dominating here in the US. And, and I don't disagree with you, but these elites are politicians that are accountable to the people and the people, you know, that vote for them over and over and over again. You have, you know, Congress people with 50 years. So even in, in Congress, so even though, I mean, they are accountable and they keep on running the country and they, so, so, you know, so I guess what I'm, my, the point that I'm making is that these, the elites are part of, of, of Congress. So th there is a disconnect because people vote and they're not necessarily informed about, you know, the positions of the politicians. They just vote for, you know, whatever marketing the politician does. So so I'm wondering if that, you know, if that changes your mind because you know we, we talk about, you know, we they need to be accountable to the people. But you know, I mean that that's the closest that we have, but it's not a perfect system. You know what I mean? I, I mean you're taking a very narrow and overly narrow definition of elites. Uh no one when they use elites to my knowledge singularly is referring to the elected official class. Rather elites are those who dominate any of the other number of influential institutions in society, whether it is think tanks, whether it is journals, magazines, whether it is academia in the, in the professoriate, whether it is Hollywood, whether it is Silicon Valley, whether it is Wall Street, whether it is the Fortune 500. So um, that is what I have in mind when I refer to right. as elites. Um, I do think that it is kind of uh, oftentimes kind of a singular mentality that has typically more often than not been forged by kind of exposure to the same kind of formative institutions, the same prep schools, the same universities and, and so forth. But um, no, I, I when I say elites, I'm not just talking about politicians. Got it, got it. And um, so another, another you know, a thing that I've been thinking is, you know, in the US, you have this debate when it comes to, you know, Supreme Court justice, who to nominate to the Supreme Court. You have originalists uh, that tend to, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, tend to look at the Constitution and say we should interpret the Constitution the way that it was intended back then when they wrote it, you know, with the original meaning. And then you have the living, breathing document it kind of narrative where you should, which I don't understand, to be honest with you, which is you can interpret it the way that you want, essentially. You can give it the meaning that you want because the Constitution is, you know, the essence of the Constitution is what's important and, and it changes generation to generation, but in Israel, you don't have a constitution. So when you nominate people to the court, 
the right, you know, the right wingers in Israel or people on the right are going to nominate somebody that, you know, has more affinity to the to to right ideas and the left to, you know, just as they have more affinity to the left. There's no originalism versus, you know, living, breathing or purposefulness. So so how do you see that in Israel going on? Well, I, I mean, Israel still has statutes. They still have laws that get passed. And, you know, not every case that gets pa- that that is litigated is going to be a constitutional case. So, the, you know, the ones that U.S. that Americans typically hear about, the, the, the flashiest, the sexiest cases, the cases that all the writers and pundits talk about are constitutional cases. But obviously, there are also any number of statutory cases, cases that implicate regulatory code, the Administrative Procedure Act, the various kind of you know, Byzantine components of the U.S. bureaucracy. So, you know, for a, a very simple statutory case could get litigated up to the Israeli Supreme Court where they are asked to kind of clarify the meaning of a statute. You know, the two parties are, are there and they stand on opposite sides. So, you know, in that particular context, then basic canons of statutory construction would definitely still be implicated. So, again, not everything is a constitutional case. But to your point, yes, um, you know, again, the, the the cardinal sin here, the cardinal sin, to use a Catholic analogy, is that Israel does not have a constitution. That obviously happens to be true. Um, if, if the Knesset wanted to statutorily codify basic laws as the grounding for Israeli Supreme Court judicial review, which it definitely could and you know, quite possibly, arguably, should do. If the Knesset wanted to say that, like you, you Israeli Supreme Court, you have judicial review, but it is limited to interpretation of these basic laws. Yeah, then you would have you know a, a more kind of constitutionally imbued nomination battle between various camps. But as of now, I guess uh, those ideological camps, from a judicial nomination perspective, would be more limited to the statutory context. All right. What what are your thoughts on you know some people say that there are ulterior motives to this uh, judicial reform, which is to save Netanyahu to absolve him from his trial. What would you respond to people pushing this you know idea? Because I, I've spoken to some protesters and they tell me I'm on the streets because the media has told me that Netanyahu is gonna get you know Netanyahu is gonna be free from from the trial you know uh, and I frankly don't see how you know it has an effect. Yeah, I would estimate that 95 to 98 percent of the idiots marching on the streets of Tel Aviv every weekend probably have zero idea what the hell they're marching about. Um, they have just been ginned up with excitement from a very, uh, you know, you know, from a very misleading press, whether that's the um, miscreants in the left leaning Israeli press outlets like Haaretz and the various left wing cable channels. Whether that is kind of international incitement from the you know the likes of which you know a, a Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, folks like that, so they're ginned up with rage. They they hate Netanyahu, or at least they think they they hate Netanyahu because that's kind of the socially acceptable or cool thing to do these days, I guess. If you're kind of like a hip secular young Tel Aviv person, um, but they really have no idea what 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 they're marching about. Now, the argument that Netanyahu has some sort of kind of conflict of interest because the possible result of this package might implicate his utterly frivolous indictments on, on, on bribery grounds, which are insane. The idea that a politician can take a few cigars is ridiculous, um, really just kind of 
boggles my mind that that could be in the minds of someone somehow disqualifying for office. But this argument that he is somehow kind of conflicted really always makes me laugh because there is no more conflicted party in this entire affair than the Israeli Supreme Court themselves because they are the ones who they are the ones who are currently telling Netanyahu, oh, you can't have Aryeh Daria part of your government, or oh, you Netanyahu, as the Attorney General and Supreme Court have said, they have tried to say to BB, oh, you can't, you have to refrain from any personal role in these judicial reforms because you have a conflict of interest. Again, the most conflicted party in all of this is the Israeli Supreme Court itself, which stands potentially fit to see its powers extremely water, well, not even extremely, to see its powers moderately watered down from its current situation where it is deeply excessive. So I, I find that always funny. Um, but you know, the fact that there are multiple parties here with a possible conflict of interest, I, you know, I think should indicate to you that the current situation is just a total mess. And that I really should just underscore that. And, you know, the polling that I've seen on this does indicate that a majority of the electorate does support does support some measure of reform, whether or not they support kind of the full panoply of reforms the government has proposed is, is kind of another story. But uh, most Israelis have have sobered up to the idea that the current situation is unsustainable and needs to change. Yeah. How, how do you think this will eventually end? You know, um, what do you think that will be the compromise? I know that uh, the president Herzog, uh, you know, is pushing for 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 a kind of compromise um, and what are the ramifications for Israeli society at large uh the way this gets the way this will finish is that the packages will pass it's just a question of when uh, and what and maybe there will be some compromises so for example it would not shock me if the override clause were considerably substantially tweaked maybe even fully gotten rid of in the final package. Not sure about that, but wouldn't I, I wouldn't wouldn't surprise me if the coalition, you know, under uh, the liberal president Herzog, under his kind of reprimanding and urging, it wouldn't shock me if the coalition were to say, um, for example, you know, maybe not a bit not a, a majority override, maybe like a three quarters override, something like that. Wouldn't shock me, frankly, um, if the government also just ditched the override provision. Um, I would not support that. I like the override provision, but it that wouldn't shock me. But uh, other than that, I, I I think they're in pretty good territory. Again, they have a 64-member coalition. There's not a whole lot of signs of any of those members going wobbly. Everyone understands that this has to pass in order for the coalition to get anything done whatsoever. It is a necessary precondition. So the way this ends is that this is going to get passed probably around the time of Pesach, maybe slightly after that, end of April, early May or so at the latest, based on my sources there and my kind of feeling of the situation. And the way that it gets it ends, I mean, the, the result for Israeli society is very straightforward. Um, it, there, it's a it's a healthy result. I mean, you know, the, you know, the, the the stupid kind of credit ratings firms like Moody's, which are saying, "Oh, your credit rating might go down if you do this." I mean, it's somewhat of a. It's really. It's so silly. It's a self fulfilling prophecy. I mean, they're they're saying, "Oh, your credit rating agency." Your your rating might go down if all kind of the high tech firms and the Tel Aviv area leave, 
But then the high tech firms are saying, oh, we're only going to leave because the credit rating might go down. So it's totally circular logic. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever there. All this will do, again, is bring Israel's uh, constitutional structure or lack thereof um, into much closer conformity uh, with the Western world at large. There will be no meaningful negative effects on on, on day to day life. On the contrary, it will have a salutary effect because it will free up this government to do what it needs to do when it comes to everything from kind of bread and butter economic issues, you know, cost of living, which are always kind of a pressing concern for Israeli voters, to, of course, national security issues, which in Israel, first and foremost, means the the Iranian regime. So it will free up the government to do what it needs to do, which, from my perspective, is a good thing because I happen to like the government. And what do you what do you have to say about, you know, Dr. Dershowitz says that, you know, this will undermine his ability to defend Israel in the world stage. So it is my understanding, and, and you know, you can correct me that there is this principle that if democracies have, you know, uh, like a mechanism to actually evaluate the actions of, of the soldiers, then, you know, they cannot be prosecuted, you know, in, in international bodies, something like that. So, you know, his argument, from my understanding, is that, you know, this this will undermine his ability to defend it in the world stage because, you know, there's no, this will, th there won't be a check an internal check on on soldiers so you know people are gonna they're, they're gonna be prosecuted in the world stage in the in you know in international bodies i don't know if i have this right uh first of all alan's not a doctor uh he's just a lawyer uh, you know <laughs> alan you know alan's fetching about his own inability to appeal to his upper west side martha's vineyard liberal friends um, rings hollow. And I frankly could not care less about that because the global elites and the global left are going to hate Israel no matter what Israel does. And this would be a very sober time for Israel to just wake up and recognize that unfortunate fact. So there is nothing whatsoever that Israel can do to win over the hearts and minds of impressionable, gullible, you know, young, Western, secular liberals, uh, the likes of which ultimately rise to power in places like Turtle Bay at the United Nations and Brussels at the European Commission. The, it, it doesn't matter. I, I mean, seriously, who cares what the what the ICC, the International Criminal Court, says about Israel? These these institutions are invariably corrupted to their core. They have a very, very idiosyncratic conception of liberal internationalism and human rights and things like that. And it is a total and complete fool's errand for Israel to go about its business with the modus operandi, with the incentive that it somehow has to appeal to these various other groups. I mean, a flip side of this would be, you know, like, oh, like uh, the Union for Reform Judaism or all these other like various kind of liberal branches in the U.S. are going to somehow question their Zionism. And my response is, who the bloody hell cares? These people are... Zionists of convenience on a good day, anti-Zionists on a bad day. They're oftentimes much closer to the latter camp when they're letting in groups like J Street and if not now into their arena. And, you know, as Ron Dermer said about a year and a half ago, he got in a lot of trouble for it, but he was emphatically correct. He said the future of kind of U.S. support of Israel frankly, does not rely on the American Jewish community. Community It relies on the evangelical Christian community because there are numerically way more of them. And, um, you know, unlike the American Jewish community, which tragically numerically is non-Orthodox and is intermarrying at an astonishing rate, 
uh, the evangelical community doesn't really suffer from either of those two maladies. So all this is based on kind of total false preconceptions about what Israel can or should be doing on the, on the international stage. Really what's going on here, if I can kind of just say this at kind of a, a higher level, what people like Alan Dershowitz, who are in, who are in his mid eighties, are doing. What people like Tom Friedman, the New York Times columnist, who whatever is in his sixties, seventies, who cares? What people like that are doing. This is the last grasp of relevance for left-leaning, less religious, largely Ashkenazi people who grew up knowing an Israel that no longer exists and no longer and, and, and is not going to exist again because those days of Israel as a secular socialist haven are done over. The left's idiocy, the the decades of leftist rule in Israel were definitively destroyed by Oslo and, and, and the second intifada in particular. It's never going to go back to that. Israel is going to be a right-leaning, more nationalist, more religious country for the time being. And what you are seeing with these cries of desperation of the likes which my recent debating partner Alan Dershowitz has been an obnoxiously loud component what you see from folks like that again is just a last grasp for relevance and trying to become relevant in a in an Israel that they are increasingly relevant to awesome awesome well I mean I, I think we covered plenty of topics um, I know you're a busy man so uh, I won't keep you Oh, but, you know, thanks for joining and, and I appreciate it. Hope, hope to have you back soon. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's just fun. Thanks.